Good morning. My name is Maria Furtado, and I am an old admission person, and that's probably the best way to describe me, not just by age, but by time in. And this is not like prison, but it still feels like time in some days. And I'm very excited to have been invited to the Alp. So welcome to the Alp. That is the best, longest introduction ever. Perfect. Welcome to The Alp, the Admissions Leadership Podcast, a series of one-on-one conversations with people who have been climbing the leadership mountain in college admissions. Some are nearing the summit, some are already there, but how did they get there, and what can other climbers learn from their mindsets, habits, and experiences? I'm your host, Ken Anselman, VP for Enrollment and Communication at Lawrence University and the Dan Saracino Chair for Enrollment Management with RHB, and with me today is, well, I think, Maria, you identified yourself as an old admissions person. Um, I would never say anything like that, but welcome to the Alp. Thank you very much. And I appreciate not being called old. I can do it, but you can't do it. Exactly. My mother, my mother taught me well, how, how are you doing? And, uh, well, how's, how's everything out in California? We are well, we live right in the city of San Francisco and we are, we feel very much that our, our mayor, London Breed has done a good job leading us through the COVID-19 challenges. We have been home on shelter in place since March 16, and our son was out of school for two days before that. So that is somewhere between two months and 19,000 years, depends on the part of the day and the part of the week. Oh my gosh. Um, well, and who is we just for the, and you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, we, um, I'm going to take all of that yes. out because I'm already flubbing all over myself, but this- <laughs> Who are you sheltering in place with, Maria? (laughs) I am sheltering in place with my family, which includes my wife, April Crabtree, who happens to also be in the world of admissions. She's the assistant vice provost for undergrad admission at the University of San Francisco. And our lovely, sweet, incredibly talkative young boy, Cove, C-O-V-E, who is five and a half and uh, has been out of school for quite a while now and desperately misses playing with children his own age. As he should. Mm. Instead, he's playing with children your age. Correct. Exactly. So we were talking before we got on the air, and you you told me that Cove is five uh, five and a half now. That's correct. And I am in total denial because he was just born last year. Um, yes, but we're doing the five year one year thing. Yeah. I mean, the whole pandemic has screwed up, I think, everybody's sense of time. But mm-hmm. it only mm-hmm. seems like yesterday when you went on leave during the, oh my gosh, which CTCL swing was it? You were, uh, and CTCL, for folks who don't know the alphabet soup, colleges that change lives. But it was... Um, it was the end of the last, it was the end of the last summer tour. So I did the Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and you were kind enough to step in and actually you finished Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the tour, which I truly appreciated uh, because our tours stops are structured differently from other college fairs where we have an opening speaker and then the college fair. Uh, Typically I do the speaking, but then I wanted to make sure that I was home in time to leave a little space for potential early delivery. But Cove was very prompt. He was born on his due date. Well done. Punctual. Um, I gained a whole 
I mean, I've always had enormous respect for you, Marie, but I gained a whole new level of respect when I had to step into your shoes at the Denver event, which I think was my first one. And um, there were probably 700 people that I had to try to channel my inner Maria to do. And you do it so graceful, gracefully and effortlessly. You're up there with your microphone, almost doing a stand-up act. I had to bolt myself to a podium with notes and follow the script. And I just total respect <laughs> for what you've done. And you. actually having, having been able to have the privilege to do that, I, I now uh, have the uh, genetic impression of being able to do it. Uh, I do it at Lawrence. Um, I've done admissions aerobics, which is one of your signature pieces for years since then. And uh, if you want to describe what admissions aerobics is, but I think I have cited you professionally more than any other person in admissions land. Um, as my friend Maria Furtado, who taught me this, and now it's five and a half years ago. But anyway, that's me. Let's talk about you. Well, um, well, I appreciate that very much. Typically, I I refer people to you a lot, Ken. Just so you know. I say, well, you know, we need somebody. And I say, you should get Ken. Ken's really good. So. Yeah, that that it's usually preceded by curse words like that. Something, something Ken. Um, <laughs> but how, the, the admissions aerobics thing, how, first of all, can you describe for folks what it is and how that came to be? Sure. What we do uh, with the program is a piece of the opening presentation is trying to get students to feel better about their search and better about their place in the search. So when we, uh, years ago, when we did our program open, it, there were three of us who did the presentation and we sort of took different little pieces. And one night as we were doing the presentation, my colleague, Jonathan Shroud, who was then at Cornell College and is now, I believe, on the high school side, stood up and said, I want to do this little exercise with everybody. And my co-presenter, Marty O'Connell, and I looked at him and went, oh, OK, we're doing a little presentation exercise thing tonight. OK. And he sort of did the admission aerobic thing and asked a few questions of the students to get a sense of what they do and what they're involved in. And truthfully, I stole it from him and you are welcome to steal it from me. And I have just adjusted it over time for my own presenting style. And my goal is yeah. to get students, uh, number one, to stand up because they've now been sitting, listening to me talk for about 15 minutes at that point. And I yeah. want them to physically move and reorient their attention. And so we got them to stand up by asking if they all hope to go to college. Simple question, hope to go to college. And then I ask them to please raise one hand if they're involved in something or can say yes when I ask the next question. Raise their other hand if they can say yes when they can answer. When I ask the next question, do jazz hands if they can say yes again to another question and then maybe just weave around in place. And it is so funny because so many people roll their eyes, including the parents, and I have absolutely no issue. I call them out on that every time. I see you rolling your eyes. Uh, but <laughs> and the I've seen that, you do it. <laughs> the reason I do it is it, um, it's actually very good for a lot of people in the room. It reminds kids how much they have to offer yeah. because they go into this as supplicants and they feel like they have mm. nothing and that the, the whole process is about them being judged. And there is judgment, no question. But when they recognize how much they have to bring to the table, the judgment doesn't feel as hard and as harsh, I hope. And it's good for the parents because they beam. They are so proud yeah. when their kids stand up and raise their hands and, and they poke them. They're kind of like, yeah, you do that. You do that. Raise your hand. <laughs> and it's so much fun to watch. Oh the one God. thing I have not done recently, which is my favorite ending, was to ask them to please or to 
maybe do later in the process, but please stand if you hope to go to college and please remain standing if you hope to take your parents with you. And that gets the crowd moving in a whole different way. Oh, if they sit down immediately. <laughs> oh my they. gosh, they sit down so fast. <laughs> there are chairs rocking, there are parents catching their kids. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Note to self, I may have to uh, add that to the end because I, I think I usually punctuate with the, uh, how many of you think you might be an interesting person? Uh, um, mm-hmm. And by that time, they're all bobbing and weaving. I've added popcorn to it where they're popping up and down, but um, mm-hmm. it is such an empowering. My goal, Ken, it is. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. My no. goal is um, to try to get every kid to raise both hands. Yeah. Not just to get not to get to jazz hands. That's too much pressure. But if I can get kids to raise both hands, mm-hmm. so at least they recognize that they do they do things that colleges care about. I think that's, that's right. That's right. And it never fails. I, I've done this dozens of times now using your formula and it never fails to, you can see people's shoulders drop a little bit. They're breathing a little easier. They're laughing, something they don't often get to do on the college search. And it's just such a, such a mm-hmm. powerful and empowering tool. And it's a long way of saying, thank you for that gift. And I am willing to, that's the kind of community spread I can, I can get behind. Absolutely. Please share. Um, you know, you've, since we started talking about having you on the app, and I think it happened in, in a hallway in Louisville back in the before times when we were actually able to see the human beings that we uh, work with and care about. Um, and we kind of said, hey, uh, would you like to be on? You said, sure. And then now here we are several, several months later. Um, and you've had kind of a, well, you've had an interesting career journey. And so I, I think for the sake of our listeners, Let's maybe talk about your current role and maybe your journey towards that role. So currently, I'm executive director of Colleges That Change Lives, the nonprofit that has 45 small liberal arts schools in 26 states. The schools came together to start working together probably close to 25 years ago after the first publication of the book, Colleges That Change Lives. And a very smart person working at Bullock College said, you know, We all have something in common, but we all have distinctiveness that would make it interesting enough for a family or a student to come to a program and learn about the bigger message of this process, which is this process is about kids. It's not about name brand. It's about kids, about Mm 17-year-olds. And they'll learn about these institutions. And so we started working together. And I was very lucky. I worked at Clark University at the time. And they sent me on the first or one of the very first tours almost 25 years ago. And I really loved the message. And I loved the, the, in the interest and engagement of the vast majority of the kids that come to this program. It's very different than doing a fair in the gym where the kid kind of wanders by and maybe they think about asking you a question. I've had people ask me the most specific questions over the years at a CTCL program. I think my favorite is still, do you believe that the physics department at your institution truly lives the mission statement? (laughs) And I challenge all the admission people listening to go back and think about that question on your campus. Oh, boy. Uh, So it's, it's always been really rewarding work because it's not just recruiting for your school, but it's also trying to help this process not be the evil beast that so many people seem to think it is. Mm. If you ask a group of kids or parents for the words they think about when it comes to college admission, oh my gosh, stressful, difficult, really hard, 
unpleasant, you know, uh, fear-inducing. Um, and I don't really want it to be that. Yeah. So I started doing uh, more and more with CTCL. We sort of um, were that group of schools that traveled together, and then somebody's got to be sort of in charge. So there were a handful of us who started sort of being in charge. And then eventually we created an advisory board and I was chair on that advisory board. And then we said, you know, we should probably make this formal. We've been doing this for about 10 years and we've, we've done good work and we should probably do this formally. So our um, then executive director-ish, Virginia Beagie, um, who was that very smart person at Beloit who said we should do this? I was going to ask, who was, the who was the spark of genius? Yeah. Um, and I think she was probably with John Yorish. So the two of them put together made a very smart, very, very smart spark. Mm. So, uh, so we put together information and did the research as to whether we should be a consortium or a nonprofit and nonprofit made the most sense. So we became a nonprofit and I was the first chair of that nonprofit. I served two terms. And then a first term, first time term as past chair. And then I was uh, working at Eckerd College and thinking about next steps. And I contacted my good friend and mentor, Marty O'Connell, who was the executive mm. director and said, will you be a reference? And she said, of course, but would you like my job? And I was kind of like, aren't you using your job? <laughs> and she said, well, I'm, I'm thinking of going to the high school side for a few years before I retire. And the board was kind enough to approve me as executive director, and that will be seven years in August. Oh, wow. Um, you've, you've just uh, named some really bright stars in the college constellation with Virginia and with John and with Marty. Um, and, and it's been, it, being part of that College is a Change Lives group and being on the board back in the day, it's just, it's wonderful being in the room with people who are, you know, in direct competition with each other in many cases, but having this shared bond of trying to put students at the center of the process. And when you do that, I mean, it, it changes your, it changes the way you approach the work. And I, at least for me and what I've seen for our team at Lawrence with a lot more health in mind, I mean, it's hard work. You, you know, you've lived it from a couple of angles, but I don't know. It, it allows you to, uh, kind of like the physics department, it allows you to put a different kind of mission to work in, in college mm -hmm. and work. It does. And, and, and truthfully, this is the best professional development I ever had over mm. these years because you would go on a tour and we would get a van and there would be three or four of us in this van driving across Texas for two days to do three stops in two days in two cities. And Somebody would say, you know, well, we did this and I was oh, really, how did that work? And why did you do that? And, what, what, and how do you, and, and then all these little conversations would bubble up. And I tell the young reps all the time, share a car, steal an idea, go back and look like a hero on your own campus. Did you think maybe we could do this? And all of a sudden you've had this great idea. They don't need to know that maybe you adapted it from another friend's, another colleague's idea. And the thing that's been fun, so you mentioned being covering for me when Cove was born. But we have been through, in this group, we have been through marriages, divorces, babies, graduations, retirements. We have been through so many life experiences as a group. And, you know, some of my very best friends came from travel in a, in a van, in a minivan in the middle of Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, I just on the, my, the previous episode, I was talking with Daryl Uwe about... Um, 
uh, our road trip up the, the, uh, from LA to San Francisco, where we had to rent a getaway van, uh, because all flights were canceled into SFO. Um, and you're right. It's this, it's this like any great road trip, right? In, in some ways you get to extend some of the mm-hmm. best things that happened to you when you were in college, but this one with a group mm-hmm. of, in some cases, complete strangers, but you can quickly become best of friends and great colleagues just by having that shared, that shared experience. So Maria, when, when you think back on, and you mentioned uh, Marty O'Connell and some others, but when you think back on your own leadership climb, um, who are some of the folks that helped uh, lift you along the way or showed you maybe a, a better path or a path you hadn't been considering? Certainly Marty, no question whatsoever. Um, she truly was just such a great and is such a great mentor and friend. And I love that she will always come at it from the, from the other perspective and ask you a question that really makes you think about something. And, and that's one of the things I love. Um, my first dean when I was on the counseling side at Clark University was Harold, was Harold Wingood. And Harold and I had an interesting relationship when I became director. I think that he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and I felt like we always had a good balance between him arriving one day with this, this idea, full born, like Athena from Zeus's head, just this, this idea that he had been thinking about forever in his head and therefore thought we had all been talking about, but it's only been in his head. And, and I think that what I brought to that balance was um, the practical side of how do we make that idea that Harold has had, how do we make that work? Um, and so uh, I think that the, the positive people for me have always been sort of the big thinkers because I have a tendency to be, I'm a first generation college student raised by very hard working, working class people. And so my first instinct is to do work. And so I, um, I have to be pushed to step back and do the philosophical piece first. Um, that's, that's always been very, that's something I know I need from someone, uh, one of the other people that I think has been one of the big influencers on my work style was one of my managers that I had when I worked for the Woolworth company. So for people of a certain age, Woolworth uh, is a big memory in your life and you're oh, yeah. there as a kid and sitting at the fountain. Absolutely. Uh, for other people, they're kind of like, what the heck is a Woolworth? You know, depending on your age, really. Woolworth, uh, isn't that, that the stuff you take on the road? To- yeah. I was gonna. I was making a bad joke about confusing Woolworth with Woolite, but uh, yeah. Ah, they <laughs> to clean your clean your delicates while you're on the road. Um, exactly. And, and one of my managers there, uh, and I had another manager in another industry that did the same thing, was very much about correcting you right there in front of whomever happened to be there. And I, I did not like that. And I learned hmm. very quickly that if I were going to ever manage people, I wanted to really not be the person who does that. That the way I look at it is if someone in your office needs to be reprimanded and or spoken to or have something pointed out that they've done inappropriately, that gets done behind a closed door. And that's between you and them. Amen. And maybe your boss or maybe HR, unless it's big enough. Um, and, and I have found that sometimes people don't realize that that's the way it should be done because I'm like, well, so-and-so didn't get in trouble for that. So you have no idea what has happened between so-and-so and me. And let's just let it be. 
You don't need to know those things. So I think that, that I've learned a lot about what to do and what not to do from people over the years. What you're describing sounds almost countercultural now, especially given I'm going to sound like I'm about to say, get off my lawn. But in a, in a social media age where everybody's voice has the same volume, um, maybe not the same number of followers or whatever, but you know, it, the call out culture is, is so much more prevalent mm -hmm. and, and you're talking much more about a call in. That's interesting. That's, that's a really good, that's a really good point, Ken. Um, there was a piece that I listened to, wow, it's gotta be years ago already by now, but they talked about, they were interviewing the author of a book, the name of a book, I can't remember right now, but the book was about call out culture and what happens that he traced like four or five people who you know, did the dumb tweet before you get on the plane, get off the plane five hours later, the world has exploded around yeah. you and you're now unemployed and, and even your mother doesn't like you anymore. Uh, he profiled <laughs> four or five of those people. And I, I, and it is a very different world. We have no problem calling people out in public. And um, the sad part is it's because it works. I'm having trouble getting in touch with someone at one of our venues. And you know, my thought was, well, maybe I should just tweet. Could somebody get this person to call me? And it works. Um, and we've let it. And so then we become a culture of call out versus calling. To kind of put a button on that particular thing, I think that that gets to maybe a leadership quality that um, maybe takes a little bit more intention than the folks' societal inclinations might be. Um, mm -hmm. Are there other leadership qualities that you have absorbed from others or seen or things you wished maybe you had absorbed um, that you, you would identify as being particularly effective leadership qualities? I think probably the two things I wish I do better, and I try to do this better all the time, but um, I wish that I was perhaps a more timely person. I had a, a friend in college who would take her syllabus and figure out when the papers were due and then calendar that all out. And she always had her papers done about a week before, and they'd be in a drawer next to her, um, filed under the class name, and they, you know, with a little due date tab. I was never that person. I was the person in college in the hallway at 3 a.m. finishing up the paper that was due at the nine o'clock class. So I've tried to get better at that. Um, I, I really wish I was one of those people who's a little bit more timely because I think sometimes I've put my colleagues behind the behind the eight ball by put, giving them a shorter deadline than they might have wanted. So that's not really fair to them. Um, mm. The other thing that that I really admire that I've tried that I've tried to work on is the people who are concise in their language and clear in their language. I think we we need more interaction with students and families and each other that is clear and concise. And I always try to read, read one more time and say, have I been clear and concise? And sometimes I feel I have, and sometimes I feel I haven't, and I can go back and look at it again. Uh, but I think that that ability to, to give and to receive information that is, that is transparent and is clear is incredibly important. And we don't always do that for each other or for our students and families. Uh, that, uh, that's something you sound like Brene Brown, I think, isn't she the one that talks about clear as kind, um, which seems, I think she is, I haven't heard her a lot, but I think you're right. Yeah. But at least given 
where I'm from. And I don't know if this is a Midwestern thing, if this is a whatever, but, you know, we excel out here in this particular part of the world at not being super clear. Um, it's the... But you've got the kind part down. Yeah, but that's not always kind, right? It's like, well, I'm going to, I sure hope you can guess why I'm not talking to you right now. Um, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> and here's a casserole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, I'm going to put it on you to figure out what you did wrong, which then I think just makes us all wander around wondering what we did wrong. Um, and it's, I don't know, it, it being clear and direct um, I, I've had moments where I, I've been dreading having this conversation with somebody because I had to tell them something I didn't want them to hear, or I didn't think they wanted to hear. That's even an interesting slip in itself, but um, only to have them say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't done that, they probably would have been going around making the same mistake. But there's this, well, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Um, when in fact, being clear and direct, um, even though it may be slightly painful in the moment, can be a really useful educational moment, not just for the person you're trying to correct, but also for the leader, him or herself. Agreed. And that's one to grow on. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> so, have you had moments, um, and Maria, you, I mean, you, you've been in, um, You've been in higher ed leadership role uh, at a, on the institution side. You, you've been at a nonprofit. Um, you've had multiple moments where, and, and we've talked about this on the, the pod before, where you wondered, do I, is someone going to come and uh, realize that they've made a terrible mistake putting me in this role? And, and you know, it's <laughs> the, the, classic, uh, the classic questioning whether you had the right stuff or not. I think that for a lot of people, when you get to a director role, you do question it because the big the big questions come to you now. And once at the very beginning, you kind of turn around and go, well, who's going to answer that? Oh, wait a minute. That has to be me, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I remember one time I was at my mom's visiting and I was doing some work while I was there. And I said something and she looked at me and she said, well, you don't get to decide who goes to school there, do you? And I said, yeah, I do, Ma. That's part of what I do. And I think she was appalled. There's <laughs> a part of you that says, wait a minute, if my mom thinks this is a bad idea, is this the good idea? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, did, you succeed? That, did you succeed in changing her mind? Perhaps eventually. Yeah, eventually. I kept bringing her home business cards every time I got promoted. Look, Ma, I got promoted. Look, Ma, I got promoted. <laughs> Um, I think that (laughs) I think that that we have as a society, especially in the U.S., we've sort of defined leadership and growth in leadership in a very narrow way. We've we've decided that you need to be you need to be loud. And I can do that part. That's not an issue. Uh, But you need to be loud and you need to be quick to be a good leader. And I think that we, sometimes what happens is we overlook the people who have really great ideas and really great leadership ability because they're not loud and they are the more contemplative yeah. thinker. I am a spew, you know, think and spew. Um, but there are others that I have worked with who are more of the 
think and contemplate and then present. And, and they actually are really great thinkers and good leaders. But you, you have to be willing to see it. And I think mm. that's hard for us, um, or at least it's hard for us from New England. You know, maybe in other parts of the country, it's easier. But I grew up in Massachusetts, and, you know, we have a lot of things to say very fast. So I think that that creates a challenge when you, when, uh, for example, I had two people on my staff, um, both of whom were smart, both of whom were good thinkers, but one was definitely more like me and that they were a, you know, a, a, a think and say, and the other one was more of a think and wait and say. And they were perceived differently in our office, and it was interesting to see. Yeah, well, and ours is a profession that tends to attract folks who, uh, well, I mean, we have to be presenters. Uh, there's a performative Correct. element to to our job, and sometimes it's the I, I wouldn't say extrovert is necessarily the right term, but the, the the person who can do what you're describing quick, think on your feet, mm-hmm. um, is the mm-hmm. one that gets noticed. Where in fact, the person who is the more deliberative thinker, um, it may be better suited for that leadership role. And and I know there there have been moments certainly in in my leadership times where I've had to fight against that inclination to find people just like me, when in fact, it's better to mm-hmm. find people who aren't um, and and looking for that complementary skill set. But yeah, I think the mindfulness about what we're looking for and, and what we value in the profession, I think is, is certainly uh, necessary. I remember someone telling me years ago that they were, uh, they felt like they were an introvert, but they had an extrovert switch that they could put on when they needed to. And that's one of the things I used to tell young people when we would hire them is this is a weird way of doing business. So think about travel. So first we hire somebody brand new. They're 22. They just got their degree. We train them for six weeks. We send them on the road. They've never met anybody. We send them out with a rental car and a credit card and here, go, go. We'll see you in November. It's been lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Now this of course is pre pre-pandemic. And, and we send them out there. And, and what do they do? They get, they get up in the morning and they drive by themselves to a school visit where they're on for 40 minutes or so. And then they get back in their car and they drive by themselves somewhere else. And then they're on. So there's this weird bipolar thing, not to be disrespectful of those who are bipolar, but there's this kind of um, two ends of a spectrum thing. You're either by yourself or with a bunch of people. And, and so you have to have almost a weird um, ability, an, unca- an unusual ability to be alone and be with other people and be able to take those two and average it out in a way that you get enough contact and enough time for yourself. Uh, but that's a, mm. an unusual skill set, I think, in some ways. That's a good, that's a, yeah, that's a good thing to think about. The, um, I was actually reflecting as you were describing that. I was thinking back to the way back um, when I first started doing that. And, and you're right. And sometimes it can be really exhausting for some folks that 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 rubber band of energy that's required, um, especially when you're done with that. I don't want to call it a performance because that makes it sound like it's you know um, disingenuous. But when you're out of that spotlight, it can take a while to recover from that too. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where I worry about the young staff. So we send them out there. They've got someone else's credit card. And we have them go to college fairs, which end at 9 o'clock and, or 
9 o'clock, 8.30. And now they've got that energy wired because they've been on for two hours, making sure that they're perky when people come to their table and they're not grumpy and they're not talking to their shoes. They're actually looking at people and talking to them. And then it ends and it's 9 o'clock in a place they don't know. And so what do you do at 9 o'clock? You either go back to your room, which some do, or you find a place to go out. And that's where that balance of being um, a young professional on the road, I think, can be hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so any advice for folks? Because I know we've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of listeners who are earlier in career um, and may find this to be their reality. Have you have you found tips that you've provided in your role as a as a director on how to cope with that? Uh, well, um, please don't be the person that shows up in the morning wearing sunglasses because you were out too late the night before. Um, there we go. And please remember that I have been a long, around a long time and a lot of people know me. And so I get a lot of, oh, I saw your colleague at a college fair. They showed up almost before it ended. Oh, really? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So one of my warnings to people is always this is a very small industry hmm. for a, with a lot of people in it. But it is a small industry and people will know you or know your boss and you don't want the boss to get the wrong report. from the road. Um, I think one way that I always I'm a reader, I love to read. So for me, being on the road is, was not that hard. I, I don't mind being by myself. I don't mind being with people. And so the, the, I love your, your, your rubber band um, example there, your rubber band of interactivity. The was not that hard. But I think that um, I suggest to people that they find a way to find something on the road, sort of like I tell families, that is relaxing and refreshing for them. Mm. And it might be, you know, you see lots of reps that were really good. You used to do this, if I remember right, were really good about bringing their running shoes and going running or going yeah. to the gym at the hotel. And um, I remember one person telling me he thought it was a great way to see every city because he ran, you know, five or 10 miles every day. And he saw the city from a whole different perspective each time. Right. Um, but right. you need to find something that works for you. For some people, it's, you know, it might be that they go back to the hotel, they, they are able to work for a half hour and then they, they read or they do an online game. For some people, it's their, it's yoga, it's um, whatever it might be. But I think that it's hard to, to dictate to somebody, this is how you should relax on the road. Right. Um, but I do think it's an important thing for each of us who has to travel for work to figure out. Um, and I think that, for example, counselors are uh, being observed in a different way when they're on the road or at a conference than admission reps are being observed by their colleagues when they're on the road. So I think so? it's, uh, How so? I think that, well, to me, I think that admission reps are always being observed as who they are but also the school they represent. Mm -hmm. Are you like your school? Um, or are you not a good fit for your school? And I think that that, I think that's always out there a little bit in the wind. I don't think we talk about it, but I do think it's a little bit out there because counselors are always trying to, as they should, understand the best they can about the institutions to which they refer their kids. So looking at the rep and saying, oh, you know what? He's, he's, um, you know, he's, he's well-balanced as a person. He's um, got a good sense of self. I wonder if that's a lot like the kids at that school. Mm. 
And so that's sort of my, been my perception about how uh, admission people are observed. I think on the flip side, there at any kind of a conference, I think there's always a little bit of the admission reps looking at counselors and thinking, could I get kids from their school? Could I get kids from their school? How should, how should I tell them about my school to get kids from their school? Um, and, and so there's, um, there's almost a flip-flop of who becomes the supplicant and who becomes the, <laughs> the, the power broker. Yeah, and I feel like it goes back and forth, and I think that's fascinating to watch oh, yeah. at, at a conference. I love to watch people, but I think there's there's kind of that flip back back and forth exchange of power that we don't think about. That's a really great insight. I, someone uh, someone way smarter than me should come up with a, an interesting way to develop a, a graph to show how the power balance shifts based over time within an admission cycle. I think the same thing happens even just in the, the, the admissions office itself. You know, you go from being the ones who are making the decisions about the student. And then once you make that decision, they have all the power to choose whether to accept mm-hmm. your offer and just the, the dynamic shifts. And I, I, I love reminding students of that. Like you've got way more agency in this process than maybe the world has led you to believe. Uh, don't forget I, that. I, I, I remind them of that as well. I, I think I remind them of it because I've heard you say that. So <laughs> again, just to cite my to <laughs> I cite thought I reminded story. them because I heard you say that. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, this could, we, could, we could get stuck in an endless time loop on that one. Um, but I'm sorry, you were about to say something else before I cut you off. Um, I don't know that I know what it was at this point. <laughs> no problem. But I'm sure it was fascinating. I bet it was full of words like supplicant. Um, I love that <laughs> word. That is that's, that is the magic word. Um, we get to ask a lot of big questions in this this role uh, in this profession. Um, what are some of the big ones you're you're wrestling with these days, Maria? Uh, I think I think we're doing a much better job of asking, or at least trying to ask, is this fair to everyone? And I've been reading so much because I'm not on a campus right now. I can read all these articles about access in different ways. I can read them from a bigger lens and from, you know, thinking back to being that first generation kid in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I think some of these articles that remind us how uneven and unequal the process is for kids across this country and around the world, really, um, you know, we, I remember being the support person for the International Admission Office and looking at our international financial aid form, and I would pick one up to process it, and it would say family contribution, one million U.S. per year. And I would pick the next one up, and it would say family contribution, $12 U.S. per year. And, and at first, when I was newer at this, I was thinking, oh, internationally, the world is so unequal outside the U.S. We're so much better at that. And now I have learned so, so clearly that I don't know if you happen to read the piece in the New York Post yesterday that someone posted about a kid who sat outside McDonald's in Brooklyn to take an AP exam to pull the Wi-Fi from the Oh, jeez. Let's, let's think about this. You know, and, and so the part of the, one of the article pieces was, how do we expect or how can we expect two kids to, to have that be considered an equal playing ground when one is sitting outside in a major urban area outside of McDonald's to borrow their Wi-Fi to take an AP. And another kid is in a house, in a room that's all theirs, 
or a study that is more formal because it's not the room that's all theirs with the door closed with powerful Wi-Fi on a brand new computer. And mm-hmm. how are we, how are we able to, to, to understand that first? And then I think for me, the hardest part is how do you fix it? Because part of me, after I read that article, wanted to just write to all the local schools and say, we have Wi-Fi and we have a dining room and we can close the doors and you can send a kid over here to take an exam in a quiet space. Now the dog might bark, but I mean, that's certainly different from traffic in Brooklyn. So uh, the, the how to fix it piece, I think is hard because it is also ingrained in us that whole, we can all do it. That whole American, we can do it attitude (laughs) and we can do it. Yes. But not if we keep kicking people down on the way by. So, I think that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around a lot of the time. And I think that's one of the big questions. And I am I am forever grateful to the people who point it out for me. And then I do feel dumb that I don't necessarily see it hmm. myself right off the bat. Um, and, and I don't feel like it's their job to point it out for me. I don't mean it that way, which is why I'm especially grateful when uh, people's first reaction um, reminds me to have a, a more more equitable first reaction to a lot of these challenges that we see in our industry. Yeah. Well, and I think you've got a lot more voices asking a lot more questions about that process. I mean, I think, you know, we're certainly seeing it with uh, colleges taking some time away from standardized testing, but I think that's just the first step. I mean, it's, it's, it's people starting to, it's people starting to think really carefully about where we have either purposefully or accidentally set up uh, barriers to entry, uh, structural inequities, um, whatever you want to call it in, in a system and why they're there in the first place. I, I feel like there are going to be some silver linings in this pretty terrible time and pretty is an understatement, but in, in, in this time of pandemic, because the business model for colleges is going to have to change. Um, but it's really forcing us to, I think, think differently about so many aspects of how we choose whom we admit to our institutions and, and the things we have relied on to make those decisions. I'm, I'm interested, eager even to see what this looks like three years from now or five years from now. I think it's going to be, yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be fascinating. There was a, a comment yesterday on a Facebook group Somebody asked about fall travel and how colleges are starting to think about it. And one comment back was just the high school visit is dead. Mm. And for some of us over the years, after doing, you know, four or five or six a day for two and a half months, we're kind of like the, the high school visit should die. It should be done. Yeah. Um, but then we flip over and we feel positive again next August when we start to travel. I'm kind of like, oh, I met that cool kid. I love high school visits. They're great. Um, and that, yeah. that generosity that our minds give us to forget the pain sometimes. But um, right. I think that, that it will be fascinating to see what changes become just part of, of the new way that we do things. Mm-hmm. What be, I mean, all this virtual work that we're all doing has just, just become part of what we do now because now we're not afraid of it anymore. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it could, this could be the big lever that shifts it. And, you know, the, all the advice we were just giving about fall travel may not even be relevant three to five years mm-hmm. from now. I, I doubt it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there will still be elements of it. But 
you know, the, you think about college fairs, they're, they're, it's a wonderful way to meet people, but they were born at a time when the internet didn't exist. And that's how you had to get information about colleges. Well, now there's a whole other way that you can collect all sorts of information about colleges, but that actually, you know, I, I just, there are so many things that I think were poised, we are poised to see change significantly. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. I, I realize that uh, um, the time we have set aside for this interview is probably coming to a close, Maria. And uh, that, that is the, you had asked if there is a bell. Um, so ding, ding. <laughs> it seems like time for the rapid descent. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know why I feel like compelled to lower my voice when I say that, but um, you're familiar with I the rapid- I can do it too. If yes. <laughs> let's, let's both do it. Um, do you, uh, you're familiar with the rapid descent? Seven, seven quick questions looking for seven quick answers. Ready? Yeah. All right, here yeah. we go. Question number one, what is your walkout song? I choose Flowers Are Red by Harry Chapin. It's got, it's so poignant, especially when you have a child of your own. Oh, nice. That's definitely going on the Spotify playlist. Um, what's the best thing you've read lately? I read this fascinating young adult series called the Unwind series. It's a set of dystopian novels by this guy, Neil Shusterman, and I thought it was fascinating and it made me think, which is good for me. Okay. Uh, did an ice cream truck just drive up behind you? <laughs> is that one of the questions? We have uh, received the, the gift of a keyboard for our child. So the keyboard has just come out. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, uh, I'm going to listen quite intently because I don't know if you know this, but Lawrence University has a wonderful conservatory of music and it's never too early to start recruiting great talent. So Cove, we are listening carefully. Um, I did know that. And I still have the letter you sent him when he was born, <laughs> giving, offering him early admission to Lawrence University. Well, good. Um, okay. So he can, he can go into this process with wonderful confidence. Um, Maria, what is the thing you're eager to read next? I am eager to finish a book called Half Broke by Ginger Gaffney. It's really interesting. And it, um, again, it makes me think and, um, and made me cry. Hmm. What is your favorite thing to make in the kitchen? Drinks. <laughs> Any, anything in particular? No, pretty much all drinks. These there we days. go. All the drinks. <laughs> All the drinks. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Um, what do you use to take and keep your notes? Pad and paper, not a pen. Pad and pen. Um, and I, I, I'll ask this question. Are you one of those folks that has a, a particular type of pen you feel compelled to use? No, but I like it to have a, um, like a blunt point. Not a not a not those tiny skinny point ones because I, I must write hard. I tend to drive through the paper with it. Got it. Okay. So like a husky pencil. Yes. Yes. Actually, we have a couple of those kicking around and they're kind of fun. I, I love those. I love those. Um, what's a memorable bit of advice you've received? Make a decision. Uh, when I first got my first store for the Woolworth company, uh, my district manager, Claude Dominicelli said, make a decision. It might be wrong. It might be right, but always make them. Don't just, don't just let it sit. Mm. Um, and finally, number seven. Name an item on your bucket list that you haven't yet checked off. I would love to go to Fiji. Outstanding. Okay. So seven quick questions, seven quick answers. And Maria, we're at the bottom. The descent is over. 
thanks for thanks for being on the Alp. Thank you for asking, Ken. You, your uh, your Alp podcasts are definitely out there in the world of admission. I was like, oh, hey, you see these? This is cool. So I I applaud you for not just wanting to do recruitment, but to actually help with the professional development that they all, we all believe in, but we don't always think about. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I will close as I always close, which is to say, Maria, may all your big dreams come true, at least the good ones. And to you, dear listener, thanks for listening. Be well and do well. Mm-hmm.